Welcome to Sin Talk. The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the circuits of nomads. We'll think about human history and prehistory in its itinerant avatar and its reflexive links with the natural and naturalized worlds. Why have mobilists existed over the years? How do geography, culture and biology interact to create semi-stable circuits? Do things always somehow get back to where they start? How does historical time flow? Why are nomads often criminalized? How did human genes get to Australia? Where did the Chinese come from? Are most processes related to natural flows? What might chromosomes locked within communities lead to? What is the long-term future of circulation, nomadism and communities? And will we always remain nomads? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Prasenjit Duara is the Oscar Tan Professor of East Asian History at Duke University. He also runs the Global Asia Initiative at Duke, which looks at Asian connections both within and outside Asia. Dr. Subir Rana is an independent researcher based in Bangalore. His academic training is in sociology from JNU. And Dr. Ketan Garaj, he is a geneticist working in CCMB Hyderabad. His research interest has been origin of modern human and genetic basis of certain diseases. Uh, so Prasenjit, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, you have a unique vantage point to this question because you're a historian and you kind of think on a certain kind of time scale. Now, as you think of us as human beings across cultures, and you obviously know certain parts of the world a lot better, um, is there a way of getting at this question of what circulates and how, and what does it lead to in a, at a somewhat meta level? And obviously we can populate it with facts as we go if needed. Um, is, is that a worthwhile question? And how does it go from there? Uh, thank you. Yes, I think that is a very worthwhile question, because if you think of it in the academic disciplines and in a lot of popular knowledge, we tend to think in terms of stabilities. Right. So, you know, and this is uh, politically the most powerful thought that nations are, in fact, stable entities uh, that have existed since the mists of time and evolved uh, to the present moment kind of thing. But uh, if you look at it historically, and I'm not going to look at it prehistorically or, you know, um, that is to say before human activity and particularly human inscriptions, right? Right. And leaving their traces. So you, you look at it from human records on. Human records on. Uh, you see that uh, there's been a lot of human and human-initiated circulation since the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. The Bronze Age is also very important because they get the emergence of empires there, right? About 5,000 years ago. And this, of course, leads to cities and exchange and movement of people. But of course, before that, uh, we've had lots of uh, movements of uh, people in prehistoric times. So I think that uh, this kind of... So I uh, believe in an idea that I'm developing of circulatory histories, oh. that histories, there are certain areas, this is not to deny that institutional processes occur within certain spaces. This right? is not to say that empires haven't existed. Of exactly. Course of course, course they not. have. And nations also exist oh. and so on. Right. But they're constantly being crossed by different kinds of uh, circulations which so are they change products them. of circulatory processes i would say that the nation is very much uh, and empires before that are very much uh, products of circulatory processes they learn different things uh, and they this is circulation of ideas of commodities trade people um, everything right all of those things and microbes and uh, 
uh, and genetic material, I think, as well. Uh, you know, which is, you which get, is human being. Which is human beings, but uh, you get uh, different uh, sort of physical characteristics, right, uh, and so on because of the movement of different peoples. So, what circulates and what doesn't circulate? I think because the yes. moment one says that there's something stable about now, whether it's nation yes. state or the nation yeah. or the empire, yeah, now there is some kind of an identity to it, yes, which makes it distinct from the other empire or the other nation. Yes, I think that. Uh, Everything circulates, everything organic, certainly. And many inorganic things are made to circulate uh, by human and other action. Uh, but what I would say is that things circulate or move. Uh, circulation is a more specific form of movement. Uh, what do you mean, so that one doesn't miss the register? Uh, circulation means that you go from one location to another to another you may return right as well right but you don't have to you but you go to several different so it's not so, a tunnel it's not a tunnel it's not a tunnel thing at all yes not from a to b it yeah. could be from and movement is just movement right, right. i can just move uh, one way or the other so uh, but what i want to say the most fundamental point i want to make is that Different entities have different temporalities. So we know that geologically, the earth is moving, right? And has changed. And I don't know how much it circulates, but suddenly in an earthquake, we become very aware that what we take for granted as ground is also a moving thing, right? I think, and then you have institutions which have different uh, levels of, different temporalities of circulation. Then you have more immediate influences in politics and so on, which move much faster. So the pace of change is different. The pace on of the change phenomena. is different, depending on the phenomenon, but they do interact as well. So, Tangaraj, if you uh, now obviously you 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 go back deep into time, far back. I don't know how back, maybe hundred thousand years or even more than that. Now, if one were to restrict it to just to human beings or our immediate precursors and thereabouts, how does one answer the same question that we were trying to think about with Prasenjit? Um, what leads to um, even if one takes the out of Africa thesis at face value? Why does one get moving and where does one move to and what are the drivers? And please paint a picture for us and we'll try and understand it better. Yes, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, if you look at the human origin, it is very clear that uh, the modern human originated in Africa and they stayed for a very long period and in search of water and food, they started migrating out of Africa. When you say search of, not for new new water or new food, right? In fact, that, was there it was a, by a, in fact, there was a mega drought in Africa. There was no water, water level has gone down. Uh, Terry says that uh, that was the time they started moving out of Africa. And in that process, uh, there are two hypotheses that how did the modern human migrated out of Africa, whether they took northern land route our southern coastal route. Uh, our study... Uh, so when, when you say northern land route, you mean hopping from Africa into Europe? Or, yes. Or, or the Middle East, the current Middle um, East? Both the, way, both the directions, either mm -hmm. Middle East and Europe or directly to Europe. Uh, our study clearly shows that uh, the first modern human migrated out of Africa taking southern coastal route. Uh, in fact, we have uh, shown by looking at the mitochondrial uh, genome variations and clearly we demonstrated that the Andaman tribes, there are four tribal groups who typically look like Africans. Onge, Great Andamanis, Jarwa and Sentinelis. So these groups, when we try to look at uh, their mitochondrial DNA, and try to see whether their mitochondrial genome is closer to any other human population living today. Uh, but we fail to find anybody is close to them. They look very unique. And based on the mutation existing in the mitochondrial DNA, we estimated that uh, they have migrated from Africa at least about uh, 65,000 years back. 
So just to be clear, uh, these four tribes you referred to from in, from the Andamans, they're not like certain African subpopulations today. So this is this is an inference based on mutation that they are similar to the original human beings coming uh, out of Africa. Since their separation was about 65,000 years back, hmm. because, uh, there'll be a random mutation in our genome, both the nuclear as well as the mitochondrial genome. Uh, if the population, two populations are in isolation for very long period, sure. Although phenotypically both Africans and uh, the tribes of uh, Andaman and Nicobar Islands uh, look similar, but their DNA mutations are totally different because right. they live in different uh, independent environment. There is no mixture between these two groups. So that puts them, Andaman is as a very unique population. And when we compare the mutation, it happens that uh, they might have migrated out of Africa about 65,000 years back. But Tangaraj, if all human beings have come out of Africa, um, today the phenotypes are so different around the world, right? Everybody looks very different. So what's happening is it just the impact of different environments plus mutations? How does one understand it at a very high level? Yeah, certain mutations randomly happens. Certain mutation happens in the coding region of the DNA particularly in the genes, for specific function. For example, if everybody originated from Africa, why the Europeans are very fair in color? Right. That happened because we need... More, sun we, more sunlight. We need um, sunlight for vitamin D synthesis. Right. Okay. And you know that uh, even today, most part of Europe... Uh, we don't see sunlight for many days. Uh, if you imagine that uh, how was the climate about 50,000 years back, right. it would have been even more um, uh, different. So in that sense, nomadism or you know some kind of this peripatetic behavior moving around is an adaptation. It's a survival strategy. Right? Yeah, first yeah. I want to address your question. Right. That because everybody was dark skin color, but we need sunlight for vitamin D synthesis. Uh, the mutation was introduced in our genome to make our skin color lighter. The melanin content has gone down. And this uh, is just one example. This is one there example. would be many other examples for different kinds of environmental situations. Yes, yes. Uh, so the, coming to the second question about the nomadism or migration of the people. The first way migration, as uh, Professor said, that is not always one direction. It can be of many directions. Were people going towards Africa? Uh, um, not exactly the same. Uh, for example, one example I can say that uh, people have come to India uh, during the first wave of migration. Some settled in southern part of India. Some migrated to Andaman Islands, some stayed there, some migrated to Australia, and the Australian Aboriginals. That's a very Indians, long journey, huh, Thangaraj? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, the Andamanis, they all share a, a common genetic pool. Um, what I'm trying to say in the migration of the people, those who come to southern part of India from Africa, based on our Y chromosome uh, haplogroup analysis, uh, based on the mutation exists in the Y chromosomes, the one particular haplogroup, Y chromosome haplogroup, has migrated from South India towards North and from North to Northwest. And in fact, the European Romas, now we have shown that they have migrated from Northwest part of India about 1,400 years back. So this is the circulatory kind of aspect. Now you could have very simply said that they just went directly from Africa, but it was via India and northwest of India. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. What does this mean to you, Subir? Now obviously you've worked on a few specific tribes, but if you think of nomadism as a concept, as a little bit of a metaphysical beast, mm -hmm. what is it? How, what are the registers on which this question appeals yeah. to you? Just to take back to history and how uh, one can see nomadism and mobility in general, uh, is that uh, when we go back in time, uh, we see that nomadism 
was always there mobility was always there and it was a social fact it was a fact of life were we and were we nomads before we settled is yes, that is course, that a settled question of is course, that a settled fact, position i would i would even go to the extent of saying that we are still nomads mm. but nomads in a different sense uh, uh, that's a different thing but uh, coming back to your question uh, in the ancient days people moved uh, along with their cattle in search of pastures green pastures also in terms of uh, for economic livelihood and uh, and because uh, there were different climatic zones uh, people moved because they would find safer shelters uh, at other places so uh, uh, they moved uh, and so these are all natural factors does agriculture have something to do with this of course agriculture but agriculture not in the sense that it was uh, uh, readily available they had to fend for themselves first uh, so it was uh, but that's foraging for but most settled agriculture is it came later on right. it came later on but initially it was for your cattle and uh, it was for uh, for yourself and uh, and of course economic livelihood but later on it became a, a lifestyle and it became a lifestyle because uh, it had a different ethos nomadism had a different ethos it was going against something which was uh, a, a given norm Uh, something which was uh, sedentary, and people who are nomadic by nature, in, uh, by lifestyle, uh, had this philosophy that anything which is static is dead. So, uh, and and because I, I'm, I'm sure the other side said the same thing. Yes, there was a lot of back and forth. <laughs> there was a lot of back and forth. And what is interesting is that uh, the sedentary communities and nomadic groups uh, always uh, had a symbiotic relationship. It was not one of hatred. There was a lot of barter. There was a lot of so you made a symbiotic relationship with the settled people, with the settled with the settled community. Yes, yeah. and there was a lot of barter in terms of uh, culinary uh, skills, in terms of uh, uh, technology, in terms of ideas as well. So uh, uh, when we speak of the British Empire and uh, the subjects, uh, yeah, there was animosity, but there was also a certain sense of ambivalence. So. there would uh, there would there would be a zone where they would meet there were there were crisscrossing of uh, cultures there were crisscrossing of ideas and and technology and and uh, also uh, people uh, so people coming from the fringes and getting into the mainstream society and then walking back and uh, so so when we speak of uh, uh, i think the whole question is that the moment you say mainstream mm-hmm. you kind of imply that the sedentary, sedentary is the mainstream yes, but what, yes. was it always so well there was uh, there must have been some kind of a transition there was a transition because uh, uh, even uh, the empires were shifting the capitals were shifting so shifting and nomadism and mobility uh, has always been a fact of life have there been nomadic empires per se and in fact there were nomadic empires by the huns and scythians and timurids right. and mongols right. who came and established nomadic empires and uh, f- uh, sometime back i was reading that there are also nomadic planets so planets were which are drifting in the space sure so uh nomadism uh, i think is is a fact of life and and uh, it has stayed for a long time and uh, there are different uh, trajectories which nomadism right now has taken place uh, you were talking about the relationship uh, between uh, nomadism and settled agriculture yeah. and sedentary life in a way both the history of china and india is dominated by this tension or by this relationship this relationship is often uh, because you can see in the whole northern borders of what is china today are steppes and there have been nomadic people who've had very strong cavalry and horsepower and of course we know the history of india is constant uh, sort of movement from uh the northwest into india and i even th- believe that to some extent the caste system is a protection from constant invasions you know right. when you look inward but uh, the point is you're absolutely right there are periods of fairly of agreement of arrangement not agreement when in fact a certain level of uh, as it's as it were a kind of a protection racket Some kind we of won't raid you yeah. if you give us certain goods and we sort of trade on that basis so that's one way i think to think of history from a nomadic perspective but the other thing that i want to say is just because uh, this is there is settled agriculture doesn't mean that 
there isn't circulatory history mm. there mm. because in fact imperial mm. centers produce much and markets and so on produce much uh, much opportunity and capacities mm. because they build roads and so on right for movement of goods peoples and things right so there are different levels of circulatoriness not necessarily physical movement mm. but people are changing because of things that are affecting them mm-hmm. and they too also move within empires now is what about this perception business per se india is one are there different cosmologies altogether does or or is there this business of this being superior or inferior to the other now would were were nomads nomads because they were forced to be nomads would they prefer to be settled and vice versa right i mean it's, it's very uh, that's a very interesting question you know when chinggis khan uh, from the mongol nomadic uh, conquered the world and particularly conquered china he was going to his first instinct was to his first thought was to convert all of north china which was a very densely settled agricultural plain by the 13th century mm-hmm. uh eliminate the whole population turn it into grasslands <laughs> until uh, his advisor told him that look you can make much more money if you use this uh, agrarian system to your benefit right because but they always not, kept their own traditions because these are not chance events right i mean this kind of happened in different parts of the world now the question is why is there this tendency towards settling now which is not to say that it's totally at the exclusion yeah. of uh, i think uh, the interests are ultimately commercial right and uh, and revenue based and as the money economy penetrates there is much more it gives them more power and they do that and in fact the history of china and today's most uh, one of the most contentious history historical problem in china with the rise of china is to what extent were these central asians who conquered china and created a separate space for them we can call it central asian china whether it's the mongols or manchus and before that uh they theoretically the question is did they rule the han population differently from the northwest buddhist and other tribal populations so can we see them as segmented empires and of course this is the american scholars of the new qing history or the new manchu history want to argue that these are separate entities it was not you know and the qing the emperors uh, treated them very differently but the chinese believe this was one chinese empire and how dare you say such a thing right so it's uh, it has con- contemporary political ramifications as well and 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 obviously there is i think he brought in the commercial interests and uh, presumably this whole business of tribes being notified and denotified and so on has to do with tax collection no? yeah. which is yeah. which is the need to settle people down mm-hmm. one of the reasons why uh, uh, why uh, mobile communities were uh, criminalized uh, was because they could not uh, pay taxes because they did not possess anything and because they did not possess anything the empire thought that you know uh, they are sixth fingers they are not they on of no use to us so why not uh, why not criminalize them and why not make them sedentary in nature uh, for various reasons one being that they did not adhere to the uh, to the british victorian uh, sense of labor to uh, hard labor which is which is tied to land to tied a specific to land, place having a having a set uh, practice having a uh, routine lifestyle uh, and because these nomads were against uh, this philosophy See, but you bring in this very interesting word routine right mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. was surely there was a rhythm and a routine to the nomadic lifestyles as well wasn't yes. there yes of course there was but for the for the mainstream society and when i say mainstream society i mean the empire for the empire this was not the norm this was not the victorian norm of having a, a hearth a home uh, a a lifestyle which was which can something be something permanent bracketed which something which was permanent something which was repetitive what about the sense of place is there or was there a sense of place and how was it yes the nomads and, and something which is very interesting uh, with regard to place and nomadism the relationship between place and nomadism was highlighted by delusion guatari when they mentioned that it is not as if a nomad necessarily has to move you can be a nomad even while sitting 
So, uh, and when he traces this, he says that you have nomadic thought. So nomad thought is gives you lines of flight. And lines of flight is about freedom, about, about deterritorializing yourself from any kind of constraint. So when you deterritorialize yourself uh, from a certain boundary, from any bracket, you are creative. You have that sense of doability, of a master of your own will, uh, which was uh, a problem for the empire, which was problem even in, in, the, in the biblical terms. So in, in Bible, you find characters like Cain and Ham. And in uh, Confucian philosophy, uh, you have uh, nomads being treated as barbarians, as uncivilized people who are even responsible for natural disasters and diseases. Right. It was thought of as a bad omen. Yes. Yeah, when we talk about the migration, not only the nomads, uh, in addition to the indigenous population, what we have here, there are a lot more migration. As Professor said, there is a Genghis Khan uh, army, Alexander army. Then there was a um, Siddhis who have been brought by Portuguese traders from Africa to work in the uh, army of Nawab. And these and are also genetic transfers. Yes. Huh? <laughs> then we have Jewish population. We have Zoroastrian, like Parsis. There are many more things had happened in the very recent past. Uh, what is not known now is that in our recent study on uh, the bone samples which was recovered from the lake called Rukun in Himalaya about uh, um, 5,000 uh, feet above the sea level, we found there are two distinct groups. One looks like they are from the local. Mm -hmm. Other group are close to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. So that study has not yet, uh, been published. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are some uh, genetic information which helps us in understanding uh, the recent migrations um, are very limited. We don't know how many more populations uh, study needs to be done to understand uh, what else you know, is there in India to, uh, to, to but Tangaraj, what about the let's let's call them the hardcore nomads, people who are not settled in one place, right? And they may have very large areas which they roamed throughout their lifespans, because then you cannot locate them to a certain part of India or a certain part of China or a certain part of uh, is is there progress or has there been studied to that effect? Yeah, every state you would take, uh, you will find nomads, but. Some of the nomads are not uh, like uh, criminals. For example, in, in Tamil Nadu, we'll see uh, gypsies, uh, locally they called as Kurvikaran. Kurvikaran. So you can see them uh, in a particular day, uh, put uh, some shelter, staying uh, very close to the main roads. After a week or after a month, you may not find them, but they may be in some other place. Uh, so that's how it goes. Similarly, there are uh, groups in Andhra Pradesh or Telangana. So, what, what are the evolutionary or genetic implications of this? Now, if if they live within the same groups, do, do they marry within the same yeah, tribes? Uh, what, what happens? Yes. What are the implications there? So, the implications not only in these small groups. Mm -hmm. The implication what we have seen in uh, at least one third of the Indian populations are. Uh, that if the populations are marrying within the group, mm -hmm. there is a mutation which is responsible for particularly recessive disease. Recessive disease are the one which will express only when the mutations are on the both the copy of the chromosomes. Right. You, uh, so you mean both the father and the mother? Yes. Uh, if uh, only one chromosome has the mutation, other chromosome is normal, the person will be absolutely fine. Uh, in a Indian culture where we see a lot more uh, endogamy marriage or population-specific marriages, you expect that uh, the mutation which may, might have arose 100 years or 1,007 years back in one of the chromosomes, since the individuals are... It keeps are circulating within the same within community. Within the community and the frequency increases. And then the process of marriage, what happens to two heterozygous individuals who are absolutely fine now with mutation in one of the chromosomes, if they, it's called as heterozygous, if they marry, there's a chance, at least 25% of chance, that 
both father and mother contribute the abnormal chromosome to the child right or more than one child children and if they get abnormal copy one copy from the father one copy from the mother is called as homozygous the mutation is there in both the copy of the chromosome only then it's going to cause the disease now so, obviously over several iterations and several reproductive cycles and yes. many thousands of years yeah the disease incidence would be very very high very high in this community so uh, although we didn't uh, now while it was set up as some kind of a protection maybe if one takes that thesis it it, it has this somewhat perverse or deleterious let's, uh, let's del- not call it yeah the deleterious mutations right we see at different level one is at population level which might have arose very recently uh after the populations got diverged that's going to restrict only in that particular population i can give you few examples one of the example is there's a population called vaishyas mm-hmm. that business community located in andhra pradesh and telangana and they are known for their endogamy marriage practice marrying within the group and they have a problem of uh, lack of pseudo colon esterase enzyme mm-hmm. so because of that if anybody goes to hospital with that problem for a major surgery if the regular anesthesia is given to them most often they will be there with that anesthetic effect and it may lead to paralysis wow that's too bad right <laughs> so even today if somebody goes for surgery uh they ask the patient are you belongs to vaishya or not that's so if they are vaishya then they give combination of anesthesia this is a fairly rigid they, boundary so they 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 come out of anesthesia no, otherwise it's, quite, it's a problem no, it's quite likely that some of the tribes that subir has worked on or yeah. even within and right. obviously there's so many different communities within india right yes Now, so many communities what was india fairly isolated for so a very long time we 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 have uh, 4635 anthropologically well defined population groups in india <laughs> is, is so, china somewhat similar <laughs> would you know no i think that in china you have uh, i think in any you don't have a caste system so you do not have that kind of endogamy within i mean it's han chinese populations and uh, there's relative freedom of marriage it's much more class uh, than any other even uh, uh, even phenotypically if you see all chinese look same but if you look at indians every population you can actually some population can be distinctly say the that the phenotypic variation is higher yeah that's because of the because of endogamy. the endogamy endogamy yeah that's so interesting uh you mentioned something about uh, nomadism and uh, its effect now and whether it is dying or not uh, well uh, i would say that yes the uh, nomadism in the original sense of the word and how it was practiced is dying to a certain extent because of the effects of neoliberal uh, policies and globalization and also because uh, they have protests in africa uh, nomadic uh, communities uh, were evicted from land and uh, um there were levied uh, grazing taxes and uh, there Somehow were the idea doesn't go very well with the idea of citizenry right i think uh, the, the whole idea of being a nomad that's that's your point yeah and and uh, uh, even now in india all these nomadic communities which uh, are labeled as uh, denodifferent nomadic tribes are not counted in the census so there is no head count and there is no population but there is an average estimate which goes around saying that uh, it is close to 100 million people uh uh in china too the entire sort of nomadic population in central asia in mongolia in xinjiang in tibet uh are being uh, first uh, for since the people's republic uh, for the first 40 50 years they had limited grazing lands right and now these grazing lands have also been uh, they're being urbanized they're being settled and grazing land is very restricted so they're being denomadized in some ways now clearly the because these are so such different systems the knowledge systems must be very different their skills their economic life must be very different and it's their very cultural difficult life their cosmologies are very different yeah. so it's very difficult for these communities uh because they have for instance you get an example of where you had you know Uh, grazing in some areas and the nature of the household itself was one where the animals would live under this is particularly parts of tibet 
uh, under the house and the houses where the architecture was in certain and now they're being moved into apartment buildings you know and there's no place for animals <laughs> try keeping and cattle so, in apartments yes. i think one of the good examples is in mongolia uh, where yurts which was the traditional uh, sort of uh, uh, place where they stayed uh, uh, is being uprooted and they are shifting to the mining towns in uh, nearby uh, cities because there is nothing left for them and uh, uh, there is lot of precarity there is lot of uh, problems which they face in terms of climatic conditions so now they are moving away from from those places where they used to stay and culture and tradition is also being lost in a certain way in a certain sense now if we were to think of the natural flows and the natural processes per se indeed do you think of that as the ultimate substrate on which this happens the reason of why certain groups and communities are nomadic the reason why certain groups and communities are settled are the reasons ultimately now finding the ultimate causes maybe a fool's errand in many ways but if if one were to attempt it are the reasons eventually natural and environmental i don't know about eventually but they're primarily hmm. i mean they begin this it has to do with the kind of ecology you have and what you can do this is not to then say that you know when the chinese uh, han population was expanding they were expanding mostly south but then in the 19th century they tried to expand north into the mongolian grasslands too they were able to actually bring in irrigation systems on the yellow river and so on to some extent to convert them into agricultural lands so i would say that yes uh, ecologically communities respond to the ecology and adapt to it for a sustainable livelihood but there is also the cultural symbolic dimensions of human which want to innovate further and transform the means of existence and my general argument is that of course this should be can be it is part of our evolutionary destiny that we have to uh, develop but it must be in relation a sustainable relationship to the nature that we depend upon and i think we have reached a stage when we have gone beyond that sustainable relationship but as the idea of the nation state for example took root around the world and at least it got more and more solidified was it also some kind of a reaction to it this whole idea of fleeing away from the nation state in some manner did nomads come to be as a result of nation states taking hold you mean did they become defined as nation no i think that nomads and transhumans and these kinds of communities are suddenly pre-existed the concept as well I think the they were called is... barbarians or something like that but they did exist because they were opposed to settled agriculture what happens to them with the emergence of national boundaries is that they get settled uh uh in some ways even more if there isn't that kind of uh equilibrium seeking an equilibrium relationship with their modes of life right but rather you want to transform their modes of life is what happens which i think is is already beginning to move in the direction of overreach in relation to what the natural environment can sustain right where do you think this is headed i think on the one hand what globalization does lead to to talk in terms of deluse and guattari and so on is a massive deterritorialization so physical territories and so on territorial markers uh, are not so much uh, or even natural boundaries are no longer as significant but there are two counter forces one is the kind of reactions which wants to recreate boundaries cultural boundaries national boundaries ethnic boundaries and the new nationalisms that we are seeing yeah somehow it's not melting away if it's anything not it's not melting away but it has a different quality from what it was right they're right. reactive it's rather reactive. than constructive or creative and the second thing i would say is that it is really this deterritorializing move uh, ignores the fact that we still depend on nature and physical regions i mean you know i give the example of the circum himalayan regions mm-hmm. there are 10 rivers there upon which more than a billion people depend mm. 
and their fates are joined together, mm. you know, by these rivers. And the kinds of politics and so on that are taking place ignores this fundamental physical, natural factor that remains at the basis of humanity, human life. Do you see geographic markers, Tangaraj, as you've gone about doing this? Because one is to do this by communities, um, but do different kinds of ecological entities and ecological zones have different kinds of uh, communities and let's let's call it genotypes that are settled there or have found their way there? Obviously, this has happened over 65,000 years, 100,000 years and so on. So it's a fairly long time to think about these things. Yeah, not ecologically, if uh, any population, if you say there are two populations living in isolation and they diverged thousands or tens of thousands of years back, and then naturally you will see at genetic level both are different. Mm. So, so those are the information which we use to trace uh, the human migration, to connect to different populations or more populations, and to see what is the relationship between different uh, ethnic population groups. I think the question is whether there's a deep link between geography and biology, right? Uh, um, yes, if, uh, that's, so if, if it if, is if, isolation. If a group were to separate and you go to very different parts, the same genetic pool, do they end up becoming different in the long yes, run? Yes, ultimately they will end up. So, and ending up taking characteristics of the places that they inhabit. Uh, they may not take the characteristics if they are in different environment altogether. For example, this adverse environment, if somebody migrating uh, from low land to high land uh, where the oxygen content is very low, uh, ultimately they'll slowly develop a mechanism in their genome where uh, their red cell, uh, blood cell can take more oxygen. Uh, maybe probably initially the people might have uh, faced some problem, but ultimately they would adopt to that condition and the adaptation is the one which gives by the environment in which people and are living. And something like this would take um, how many generations? It takes uh, several generations. Hmm, um, 10, 100, 1000? Uh, we cannot really predict. Uh, That's all depending upon maybe initially, uh, uh, for example, there are 1000 uh, individuals who are migrating from here to Himalaya. Right. Out of 1000, there could be only few survivors in that uh, region because those are the ones who fit to survive in that environment. Remaining must have uh, no, died uh, because they could not survive. So that means those who are surviving, they are the one who carry uh, the genetic uh, mutation which makes them to survive in that environment. Right. Then subsequent individual from there uh, will have uh, the mutation which is which helps them in uh, adopting to that environment. So even today, if you look at population living in uh, high, uh, very uh, high altitude, you'll find a difference in their genome. The genotypes are different. Genotype. And the, on the other way, uh, if it is useful, it remains there. If it's not harmful, also it'll remain there. For yeah. example, if you look at the Tibetan who migrated from Tibet, and those who are uh, presently in one of the uh, inhabitant place in Karnataka, when we look the marker, which helps them to survive in high altitude, uh, we looked at uh, it's still there with them because right. <laughs> presence of that is not giving any disadvantage to them. So right. it remains there. If uh, the same way, if it gives disadvantage, it may be eliminated from the population. But over a long period of time now, obviously you touched upon the notion of ancestral South Indians yes. and, you know, the Andamanese and so on. But over so many cycles, has it all gotten mixed up? Uh, because uh, it's been a fairly long time. Obviously, you spoke about endogamy and there's uh, yes. intra-community marriage and so on. Yeah. But there are many other parts of the world and people have kind of mingled a lot more freely. Now, are those gene pools, now pool is a very interesting word yes. because it has a circulatory kind of uh, ring to it. Are they totally mixed up? Uh, yes, uh, actually, every Indian should know about the history, genetic history of Indians. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned that uh, there was early migration. People migrated towards uh, uh, Andaman Islands, then further to uh, Australia. In that process, some settled in India. So the first modern human 
inhabited in Indian subcontinent, whom we call as uh, ancestral South Indians. Right. Then the second wave of migration, uh, which where people must have migrated towards north, and there was a divergence, and people, some group has gone to Europe, and some come to northern part of India through Middle East, uh, whom we call as ancestral North Indians. So these are the two founding populations of the Indian But these are different branches. These two are two different branches. Right. And these two founding groups actually gave rise to many populations. From there, there's a, several branches initially came out. From, But there must be a very high overlap zone as well. Yes. So initially they came out from ancestral South Indian and ancestral North Indian. This happened um, until last 4,000 years. For the last two to 4,000 years, these two founding groups uh, have admixed. Oh. The groups emerged from the founding groups have admixed. The admixture took place for the last two to 4,000 years. After admixture, for the last 2,000 years, Every single population is started maintaining the endogamy marriage. So the admixture came before endogamy. I mean, admixture, of course, the yes. local in breaks and it's not like it's one Correct. at the expense of the other. Yes. So what is the impact? Actually, uh, the prediction was for the last 2000 years, most of the population started marrying within the group or practicing endogamy marriage. Maybe the caste system which arose much later, maybe around 1,000, 2,500 years, must have put more pressure on every population to strictly marry uh, within the group Now or the, follow the, the, the endogamy. Now, the tribes you know of, mm -hmm. uh, Subir, yeah. do they marry within the same communities? They do marry within the same community, same group. And just to add on to uh, Professor Thangaraj's uh, assertion uh, regarding endogamy, Uh, there is a very strong sense of marrying within the group, even within the Romas, the Roma gypsies. And they have very strict laws, which are called Mochadi laws, uh, which is about purity and pollution. And if you marry outside the group, outside the community, you are ostracized and you are no more, you're off the shelf. You're no, not a member of the community anymore. And uh, it has to do with uh, uh, not just endogamy, but also about cleanliness of the body. So uh, there and family structure and and uh, gender roles. Gender roles are strictly defined, wherein man goes outside. So the well, these are cultural takes, norms. To these, these are cultural keep. norms which are really really important for uh, gypsy societies and nomadic communities as well. And uh, uh, you're mentioning about the relationship between uh, geographical location and topography and nomadism. I would say yes, it plays a very important role because. Uh, uh, a person who is living in the steppes uh, or uh, do you think nomads are eventually animal tied to animals and yes, animal yes, driven yes 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 because that, initially it started off yes it started off from uh, nomad basically means to look for pastures right so, so they're the, pasture seeking people exactly so so you are moving in search of pastures because uh, once you uh, uh, you are done you away you grazed one area it's done yeah, so, so you, you have to move on So, so, so that movement, brings in the cyclical right, nature right, itself. Right, that, right. So that is goes. circularity itself. So they have a path. They have a. They have. They trace a path. It's it's a circuit, which is not to say that they are wayward and they take in. Uh, they have this notion of uh, climatic conditions. They have uh, a geography in in mind. Uh, where trace the path but so, so in a way the nomads are not settled because the animals are not settled yes they're, yes they're moving around yeah, yeah. in many ways <laughs> yeah. and i think the description that you had tangaraj which i want to link to what prasenjit might know about is i think your description of ancestral south indians and north indians is kind of very clean and of course this admixture came before the endogamy and so on but if obviously everybody came out of africa right if you take a step back yes now Are these clean breaks lying all around the world? No matter which population you look at, does it have a phylogenetic tree that you can draw and say that you know this led to that and that led to this? Or there are parts of the world that are a lot more mixed up and difficult to trace back to? Uh, yes, if you take, uh, for example, 100 different population, actually you can connect all of them based on the genetic similarity. Some may be very close, some may be very far. So all what about what about the Chinese, for example? I mean, I think you already mentioned that you don't have caste system or something to that effect there, Prasenjit. But is 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 that a different kind of population? Yeah, so uh, uh, similar to Europeans, so they also very distinct community. 
and uh, so there is still a lot more needs to be done to understand about uh, their origin well yes uh, i just wanted to say that uh, this what you call circuits of circulation or spaces of circulation uh, is uh, is very important and you know network theory which is now developed all over and these are networks of some kind uh, often doesn't pay attention to these spaces and uh, because what enables the moment and culture society and kapil raj has written a very nice essay on this you mean spaces of circulation spaces of circulation because they are enabled by for instance i uh, have uh, know the work of a um, scholar of uh, mongolian nomadic music mm-hmm. and this music is very attuned to the geography and to the culture to the animal sounds to the seasons in different paths this music reproduces really the circuit right the space of circulation and that can be just as important as uh, a cultural sense of belonging mm. as a place so it's a different kind sedentary. of home so I mean, it's a you, different you, kind of home so the home is not spatial or geographic They're but in in a way the coupling is to seasonal time yeah. or time it's not or place day. but space not yeah. place but space that's well put. natural space that's a very important uh, distinction which uh, professor has made about space and place so spaces when you speak of spaces it would be deterritorialized it doesn't have any boundary so you you tend to uh, uh, be free to move anywhere you want uh, and but at the same time you can come back to that same place so there's a circuit to it there there's a circulatory uh, uh, ethos to it but are nomads entirely free what are their constraints their constraints come from uh, of course from nature right in many now, ways because they're tied to it right now right now uh, their main uh, constraint is regarding the uh, push and pull of globalization uh, because it's it's always a we feeling there's a relative deprivation which they feel when they compare themselves to the mainstream society that they are being being orphaned they're not able to take care of their own lives but at the same time when they see the other other side the the other society it's it's uh, well taken care of they have houses they have cars they have the children go to good schools but the very fact that uh, they can't do that or they are constrained by these factors by by the very philosophy that they have been following for so many years but something else is nomadic right capital is nomadic that goes around yes um, yes yes but uh, when you speak of uh, people uh, it has a different connotation because it has a culture it has tradition it has it has uh, it has an entire way of life but then uh, when i was uh, speaking about in mongolia um, when i was reading about uh, this entire population and the biggest population which uh, the world has of nomadic people is in mongolia and and this culture this tradition is being lost because they feel that they are not being able to support themselves uh, as compared to the non nomadic society the sedentary society so now they are moving towards cities and towns to get access to education good education livelihood options and uh, they are uh, leaving their yurts which was a traditional tent house uh but moving towards uh, uh apartments and uh, other facilities which the government is giving them do, do do you say this with a romantic kind of regret um because you know the world is always changing right mm-hmm. i mean there is well things go up and down so many things have happened you know you, you do genetic history so you think of this in terms of millions of years you think of this in terms of several centuries no but when when we speak of a, a community which is losing its own culture which is losing its own tradition it has a different impact it is not about just shifting from one place to the other but it is imparting a different ethos altogether to the coming generations so then you are losing out on many things and things are intertwined so it's not like it just lose your happy lifestyle mm-hmm. you probably lose your language your culture and many other things in the way you were saying something for sandeep no it's the question that you brought up about capital capital is certainly circulatory the interesting in fact, question is that it circulates freely yes and i certainly agree with you that it's very different from uh, the effect on humans but uh it's an interesting question to ask is what are the spaces what is the ecology for capital to circulate what does it need 
and does it what circuits does it need what the circuits are necessary are its infrastructure and provisionings right does it need global cities does it mm. need a mumbai with a beautiful waterfront mm. does it need um, the kinds of services that it thinks because even but they does need... it also need spaces to be invested in mm. right which it can you know so and how much is that compatible with these disappearing forms of life how much does it replace there i is, would ask this um, yeah because there is the question of form and whether something is settled or whether something circulates obviously has something to do with the forms that exist and forms that come to be um no that's so interesting where where is where is this headed what is your take on this where is this headed in the next 1000 2000 years yeah i would say that uh, nomadism as as a way of life and as a philosophy itself uh, has can taken, never fully go away n- never not at all in fact it is taking different t- uh, trajectories now you have digital nomads uh, you have neo nomads which is an alternative lifestyle altogether but the the flip side of this is that for those communities uh for whom this was a lifestyle this was an ethos uh for them it is a stigma but then <laughs> but then for tourists and people who uh the upper echelon and uh, the elites for for them there's a travel industry that's the bauman point right the that's tourists zygmunt, are different that's what uh, zygmunt uh, bauman says and he uh, places vagabond uh, uh, vis-a-vis uh, the tourist uh which is uh, of course i mean that's a reality which we have to face uh, as to why certain communities which were nomadic in nature uh, for whom mobility itself was a way of life uh, how does it become uh, a stigma and why are they being criminalized uh, but for people who because of their own uh because of the capital that they have uh, because of the kind of lifestyle that they want to pursue which is alternative lifestyle how does it become status all right the point that you made when you started prasendit about circulatory histories with with let's say using the ocean as a metaphor as opposed to the river for lack of a better word now what are what are the limitations of this metaphor because um now the answer to the generic question of what circulates would be everything right mm-hmm. everything circulates but does everything lend itself to this more oceanic circulatory kind of metaphor as a description or as at least some kind of a model to understand i think um yes i make a distinction in my work between what i call historiographical time and historical time historiographical time is a kind of time that is a kind of uh capturing of historical processes for some kind of project whether mm-hmm. it is the project of trying to understand the flow of cotton or the nation the history of the nation or a civilization or whatever but historical time and you know the role of humans is important in our understanding of history humans um engage in historical projects or they engage in projects that become historical but what happens first and foremost we have to i think take the this sort of ontological turn that has emerged in the west uh, in in scholarship in general that uh, agency is not restricted to humans right there's a chain of agency right and the machines and instruments and yeah, yeah actant uh, network theory and michel calon's idea that you know the instruments are you that you use for evaluation measurement and so on are also as much agents in the Is creation this? of a result but there's even more when you look at the chain of historical activity it disperses in many ways it produces many counter consequences it produces counter finalities and so on right so that is what i see as something that is the nature of time and nature in time right right if you know what i'm trying to say and in that sense the oceanic is uh, well it produces two two uh, lessons for me one is that history 
as we know it, should not be so divorced from the natural mode. It is continuous with it. And secondly, it is not restricted. It is only limited by certain projects. And it continues to have effects that may circulate in different places, that may come back, whether you recognize it or not, as having um, uh, come to you earlier or you've developed it in some way. And this then tells me that history is a planetary thing and not the exclusive property of any sovereign entity. So that's What I find so interesting in your description is that if I try to link this to how Tangaraj was talking about genes moving and of course eventually think of it as human beings coming together, and you know, more specifically in terms of marriage and so on, we still kind of marry within communities or it's not as admixed as, you know, um, maybe some other domains that one might right. speak of. Now, when you spoke of that admixture zone before endogamy in, in a very right. limited kind of context, how mixed up can these things get? And of course, no one is asking you to make sociological predictions about where this is all headed and how marriages would happen. But how do you think of this uh, from a super long-term perspective and how genes might mix together? Because it still has, I think if one were to restrict it only to genes, it still has, it's closer to the rivers than to oceans. Wouldn't you say... Yeah. So if you look at a very long-term uh, perspective of uh, the endogamy marriage practice, uh, if this goes for a very long time, uh, almost every population who practice endogamy will have a population-specific disease. Uh, we, so they should they should be wiping themselves out in the very long run. Uh, they would end up not if them. it is a. Um, I know dominant it on disease. the fertility rate. If, and so if on. it is a dominant disease, we obviously know the individual who has the disease, then um, treat or, or some of the uh, mutations are lethal. So that may go away. But the problem with the recessive diseases are people are healthy when they are with heterozygous condition. Right. Uh, so that we don't know what is the frequency of that is uh, in a given population. So it's kind of hidden uh, disease when two individuals carrying the mutation in heterozygous condition, if they marry, only then we'll see sure. the children with the disease. Uh, that is because of the practice of endogamy for the last at least 2,000 years, which we uh, predicted. So there are several examples we have um, shown in our uh, recent uh, research publications. Uh, so in terms of uh, looking at both research as well as societal point of view. In a hypothetical world, Tankuraj, yeah. where genes mixed freely, mm -hmm. where anybody married anybody. Okay. Uh, what is that world like? From You want two lenses here. One right. is just survival and so on, and the yeah. other is the disease lens. Right. So if... if what if, is that hypothetical world like? Uh, so that still exists. For example, if you compare Indians versus rest of the world, or South Asian versus rest of the world, so they practice, you uh, know, the, uh, the free uh, kind of marriage. They don't restrict to uh, population-specific marriage, where we don't see uh, Do you such think condition the mortality is... rates of groups that practice endogamy or things of that nature? is higher because of population-specific diseases? Of course, yes. Uh, we, uh, not only theoretical point of view, we are also looking at uh, the real cases where we are seeing the homozygous condition. Then purely from a survival standpoint over the next like half a million years or something like that, um, you have no option but to mix up, no? Yes, it will it'll happen. <laughs> it'll happen but again, these things happen in phases just as... Uh, uh, this admixture phase was followed by endogamy. So I don't know. Obviously, there are all kinds of factors. It's not just... Uh, the admixture followed by endogamy may be because of the caste system which arose. Yeah, but then the caste system arose put... because maybe there were people turning up at, at the doors. Uh, and, well, but and it's related. It was a protective kind of... But it's related. Related, yeah. It's completely related. So, so I, I'm sure uh, this may change. Even today... For example, two generations back, if you see, in a, 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 take any population, they might have strictly followed the endogamy. But now, slowly, intercaste marriage is happening. Right. So people are aware of the problem. 
and they try to uh, you know get away of most of the uh, the problem by uh, going uh, exogamous marriage so is nomadism here to stay nomadism uh, also may might change but still some may uh, stay after several thousands of years but slowly it may change but the number may reduce but still some of them may still practice the nomadism we'll end with you prasenjit there's nomadism here to stay what's what's your prediction i think that uh, yes nomadism in its varied ways not just uh, the population of grazing population but nomadism in a broad way is becoming more and more important in fact with climate change and uh, refugees and migration and so on i mean migration itself is 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 a kind of forced nomadism in yeah, a way yeah <laughs> is a kind of forced nomadism and people move from different places and globalization is leading for people to go place to place mm. to place mm. so i think that's definitely happening and it will become more so uh, i think in that what we've discovered here is the exceptionality of the south asian endogamy and caste system which i think uh, was developed precisely as a protection from outside and you know and these uh, to retain some community identity because of the outflow and so on and it was as we can see uh, overly successful effort and which can get in the way specific side effects as we know yeah. <laughs> so um so But these I things are complex beasts right because it's not there are all kinds of factors economic social cultural sure, chances sure. yeah i think yes, of uh, course they all glob on mostly due to the social structure uh, uh, unless otherwise we change the social structure uh, it going to remain the same it depends on what leads to that because again yeah. the the drivers are always very different it could be commercial it could be something else it could be just it could be survival instinct it could be <laughs> yes. it could be just a simple straightforward survival instinct terrific i think thanks this is good note when this on thanks to all of you for making it and we thank look you. forward to having you soon again thank you for coming thank you very thank much you. for thank having us here thank you yes